how much higher can we take the peaks of the chorus? How much mm-hmm. lower can we go in the verses in order to carve out space for that chorus to have more impact? Things like that. Have you ever tried to fall asleep Twisted in a stranger's sheets I'm sure where you should put your feet Unsure if you belong Have you ever watched a peaceful chest Rise and fall as you got dressed Unsure if you could catch your breath Unsure if you're that strong Relax, let it go Hi, and welcome back to Music at Three Pines, the podcast. My name is Brad Rayley, and for this episode, I sat down with Rebecca Lobby. I first met Rebecca in Oklahoma when she played the Depot's Winter Wind series. I was her advanced person and got to spend some time chatting before the show. We have seen her at several folk alliances and got her to play our house show several years ago. Rebecca is a thoughtful songwriter with a very stunning voice. Our conversation starts with a discussion about life under the pandemic and her need to take a break from the road. We also talk about her approach to songwriting, her YouTube series on life in the music business, and of course some fun questions about her taste in music outside of folk. In addition to being a thoughtful songwriter, Rebecca is just a thoughtful human, and we had a great time chatting, as I think you will see. Rebecca Lobey. You know, I'm doing well enough on my Patreon that I can just sort of skate by, mm-hmm. and I will leave the online shows to people who need it more than I do. But then, I mean, that could only last for so long, you know, and, yeah. you know, savings start to run thin. And um, and I, I need to connect and perform somehow. So I started getting pretty active. And now I'm doing online shows. And I, you know, I've been doing a pretty good job, I think, of like building my Patreon up from where it was. But even before I started pushing, before I asked a single time, I had like a few dozen people who voluntarily increased mm-hmm. their pledges. Like, just thought yeah. like, oh, well, Becca's not touring. She must need a little extra support and raised yeah. from $3 to $5 or $5 to $10 or $5 to $20. I mean, it was, it really moved me to tears how many people like just spontaneously did that on their own. And that is the position I'm in because I've been doing this for 10 or 15 years, <laughs> you know? Yeah, but, you know, I, so I did have a, do a podcast with Liz Longley and you came up mm-hmm. in conversation. Um mm-hmm. Mostly because she didn't realize she went to you went to Berkeley not for songwriting. She she oh. she was like I I know her through the music business. She, you know. Yeah. Anyway, she was right after me at Berkeley. Okay. She was like a whole class after me. Uh, but it, it, thinking about Liz and about you, uh, I think there's some similarities in that both of you have done a really good job of cultivating your fan base. So it isn't just, I mean, yes, you've been doing, you've been touring, you've been doing the work, you've been playing the shows and and doing the the groundwork. But, you know, there are a lot of people that play a lot of shows who I think struggle to keep that kind of retention, uh, of fan retention is what I'm, uh, I'm referring to. And, you know, and I, I posted, I don't know if you saw on Facebook, cause I, I, I posted something funny yesterday cause I interviewed a guy for my political podcast this morning on race, uh, the white too long author about, uh, racism and Christianity, which was fantastic. And then I was going to be with you and I, and I, so I said, you know, if anybody wants to, I, I'm interviewing Robert Jones, the author of white too long and Rebecca Lobey, the author of, uh, just be nice, damn it. Um, and you know, if anybody has any questions and Warren Metcalf, uh, chimed in and he says, ask her how she deals with super fans like Trina Hope. And I was like, yeah, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> Trina is the least of my problems. Oh my right. God. If I, 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 Trina is worth her weight in gold to me. Yeah. She's, she's fantastic. Best. 
but but again, that really is that's a credit to you. And I saw this. I mean, like I said, when I worked with you at the depot, you came to the depot because you had played Woody Fest, and several of the people at the depot had seen you at Woody Fest. And you know, and then I I saw you there, and then I saw you uh, at, at the Blue Door with Raina. Um, yeah. And then, and then of course the folk Alliance just about every year we've been, but you know, I, everywhere I go, I run into people who know you and, and it's, so that's a credit to you, not just of simply doing the work, but you have, you do a good job of connecting to people and giving them a sense that you care about them and not just because they want to buy your records or something like that. So that's, you know, you're a genuinely nice person who people like to be around. So that's, Oh, thank you. Yeah. That's... All right. Uh, that's all I have. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know. Are we recording it? Yes. I <laughs> have am. we started I, the I, podcast? <laughs> I said it to record because I never know what's going to happen and I don't want to forget. Um, no, that's great. So let me ask you. I mean, you, you've kind of answered some of this. I've usually asked people starting out. Um, this whole podcast started because, of course, I couldn't do shows, uh, couldn't do house shows. And so allowed me to reach out to some people that have played in our house or were going to play in our house, like Hannah Miller. Mm -hmm. You know, Hannah, I love Hannah. She's in Nashville now, right? Yeah. I just did. She's been there forever. I've known her since she lived in Columbia, South Carolina, Oh, like 14 years ago, like really early touring days. And I would stay at her house and she'd help me book shows. She's such a sweetheart. And yeah, yeah, I really, really like her. Great. Unbelievable. Voice. She was, well, you'll have to listen to the podcast because it was kind of funny. She was talking about how bad she was in her mind when she started out. And she was putting, <laughs> we had this funny little She's exchange crazy. where she said she was recording stuff on and just burning them on her CD and selling them at her shows. And she's like, and they're out there and I can't get them back. And, and so I made this joke about a reverse merch table where she. Ah! <laughs> I wish. Yeah, if I could get my first record back from everyone, that would be great. Like I took it off Spotify, but yeah, if I could set up a reverse merch. I'll give table. you two of my most recent. <laughs> yeah. It's like a gun buyback. I was is. just thinking that. Yeah. <laughs> um so you've already answered some of this. So I've been starting out kind of talking to people about the pandemic and you, you've already, you know, you 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 guys have a, a relatively new house, correct? Out mm-hmm. on the uh, starting your own militia compound. Yes, exactly. With, with guitars and a dog <laughs> and an adorable puppy. Um, and, and, you know, and I mean, I've, I've now known you now for several years. I always get the sense of you being pretty even keel. Um, and it seems like that even the way you're describing this is that your approach to the pandemic has been essentially to be pragmatic, you know, say, all right, can't do this. Let's figure out what we can do and let's, you know, all those things you were just talking about. Have you, in terms of like self-care or meditation or anything, have you you Mm -hmm. felt the need to do more of that? Have you found the time to do more of that because you're not touring? Is that? It's so interesting. The pandemic came along for me at a time when I desperately needed a break from my life as it was. I had been pushing myself physically in an unreasonable way for a really long time. Like I was just talking to somebody about how, you know, well, okay. So like five or six years ago, I went to Japan. I went on tour for 10 days. I came home for less than 24 hours 
did laundry, and then got on a plane again the next day and flew to Florida to play a festival there that was five days. And I played like 10 sets in five days. It was a songwriter festival and I did two sets a day. And then the morning that it ended, I had to leave the goodbye brunch early to go to the airport. And then I flew to the Netherlands for a three-week tour in the Netherlands. And I have been scheduling myself like that. Like that wasn't, that was a little more extreme than usual, but it wasn't Mm -hmm. that uncommon. Um, Last year when I was at Folk Alliance, you know, I started, I started 2019 off with a record release. I did a five show tour with my band. We played at the Blue Door. And then after the Blue Door show, the band flew home. I drove in the minivan with the band, I mean, with all the band's gear up to New Jersey in two days. It was two 800-mile days. I had hoped somebody would be able to be there with me and help me drive, but nobody was available, so I just did it myself. I got stuck in bad traffic. I got all sorts of things happened. And then there was a snowstorm um, in Montreal where Folk Alliance was happening. So when I got to New Jersey, it turns out that my flight had been canceled. So I drove a little further to northern New Jersey, or yeah, northern New Jersey to my booking agent's house, and then she drove me the rest of the way to Montreal. So in those three days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I had basically, actually, between Sunday and Wednesday, I had driven the entire way from Austin to Montreal. Then I got to Folk Alliance about an hour before my official showcase, played my official showcase, and then did four days of Folk Alliance, drove from Montreal back to New Jersey, got my gear, drove from New Jersey to Boston, picked my band up at the airport, and then immediately went into rehearsals, and then immediately went into a three-week East Coast tour with my band. And again, that wasn't unusual scheduling for me. And I've been doing this to myself for a really long time. Mm. So earlier this year was getting to the point where it was becoming really apparent that I needed to take a break. I needed to slow down. And I was trying to figure out how to slow the merry-go-round down. And I just could, you know, I, I have two full-time projects, my solo band and my mm. band Nobody's Girl, who I love. And I, I don't want to take energy away from either of them. And I was, I just had this epiphany one night on stage because I was starting to have just some issues. I was having chronic laryngitis and I was dealing with all of these classic symptoms of exhaustion, including chronic hives. And, you know, it, it got kind of grim. Um, and I had this realization one night on stage where I was actually having trouble breathing and um, during a song and I had to like stop singing just in order to catch my breath. I realized I have a lot of ideas. <laughs> I have a lot of cool ideas and things I want to do. And I have to let learn to let go of trying to execute all of my fun ideas. And I need to just pick the ones that are going to be the most fun or the most, you know, interesting or bring me the most fulfillment or joy and that what I'm doing to myself is trying to actually do all the weird, cool, fun, crazy stuff I dream up for myself. And so that was this big epiphany. And then I still, of course, had a full year of touring on the calendar. And I was starting to try and figure out, like, what could I cancel or postpone? Or how can I clear every day that isn't a tour date so that I can just be home and relax and try and just recover myself. And I was in the process of trying to clear as much time in March as I possibly could. And then all of a sudden, South by Southwest was canceled due to COVID. And then things just started shutting down. And so for me, it was very bittersweet. Mm. It was obviously not the way I wanted to get a break. But 
the downtime was something that I desperately needed. So for the first month of COVID, after I got all of my shows canceled, I took a complete and total break from everything work-related. Um, and I know it sounds like somebody with a difficult real job would hear me say, oh, I took a break from my work as a musician and think like, you know, shut up. Like, what are you talking about? But the singing on stage is the fun part. That feels like my hobby. Yeah. The work I do is 12 hours a day at my computer doing, you know, running a business, running a music business, right. running a small business. So I um, told my, I had my management company checking my email. I just sort of logged out of all social media. I logged out of email completely. Wow. I removed myself from every text thread involving, you know, management, booking agents, my band, everything, and just wow. told everyone that I'd be back a month later. And I spent my time doing arts and crafts projects mm. and meditating every morning, doing yoga, going for walks, you know, spending time with my partner who's really private and isn't on social media at all, but right. he does exist. Um, and it was, yeah, and it was crucial. It was crucial to my my well-being and my health. And I haven't talked about it much. I mean, I think I've I've been open about it on Patreon and maybe mentioned it here and there, but I do kind of feel like I want people to know that I went through this, that I had this experience because people often see me out there working hard and being this crazy little energizer bunny. And I think it's important for people to know that like, don't try and do what I've been doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm doing great now. Um, coincidentally, we moved out to the country right before the shutdown started. I mean, right before COVID hit, it was a decision we made back in December, I think based on some of this exhaustion I was dealing with and the thought that, you know, I've never lived in a rural area, but mm -hmm. thought like, you know, be close to his family so that when I'm gone, he's close to family. And also for me, like when I'm not on the road, I'm somewhere peaceful and pretty. So we started, so we made moves to make that happen. We moved on February 24th. Wow. So we were home for a week and then I went on tour for 10 days and I came back and haven't left since. I mean, I've been at my house. And because of all the stuff I dealt with last year, things like hives, um, being put on some medication for hives mm. that actually suppressed mm. my immune system and then I had an allergic sure. reaction to that medicine. And I don't know if you remember that I wasn't at the last show. You, you wouldn't remember. You were in Colorado. Sorry. But I actually had to miss the last weekend of Nobody's Girl touring last year mm. um, in December. And the the my fellow bandmates went up without me to yes. Oklahoma. Yeah. I do remember that because, because Mark, because uh, Samantha Crane, didn't she sit in? Yeah, you? yeah she did. Uh, and that was because I was sick. I was having chronic laryngitis and I went to the uh, doctor to try and get her to sign off for me to go play the shows. I basically wanted a doctor to say like, okay, you do have I'm laryngitis, fine. but you've been resting your voice for four days and you'll be fine. And instead she took my temperature and my vitals and said, you have to go to the emergency room because your blood wow. oxygen level is 85%. And it turns out that I was having a major reaction to some medication I'd been put on for the hives that had suppressed my immune system and I was allergic to wow. it and I was hospitalized. So um, things got bonkers for me. What was I going to say? Oh, because of that medication that I was on and that whole experience you know, with my immune system, I've been taking COVID precautions extremely seriously because yeah. I don't actually yeah. know what condition my immune system is in right. might not be good. So, right. uh, and also I just don't want to risk anyone else's life or right. health or safety. So the decision that I made in March was to 
stay home and to not leave my house for anything non-essential until the situation improved. And since March, the situation has just gotten worse. And, you know, at the first of each month, I reevaluate my safety Mm -hmm. protocols and ask myself, like, okay, what am I comfortable with now? And it's like, well, things haven't gotten any better. So I'm just going to stick with this plan. And it's made, I feel like for somebody who has a really hard time with boundaries Mm -hmm. and setting boundaries, like this year has been like the freaking boundary Olympics for Mm -hmm. me. You know, I've just been like learning how to clarify and enforce my personal boundaries around my safety and with my family and, you know, but pretty much luckily for me, I have plenty of fulfilling and exciting things that I can do at home. So once I finished sort of my, my, um, what I call my at home rehab for being a workaholic, um, and started reentering the world of uh, my career, it was sort of a slow reentry. And I, sort of picked and chose the parts of it that I wanted to focus on. I decided that it didn't make sense for me to put energy into booking and possibly, you know, promoting and planning for shows that might not happen. So I set the boundary for myself and my team not to book any in-person shows for me until it is safe to play in-person shows. And I don't know when that'll be, but um, for now I've been working on, getting, you know, the kind of the back end of my business organized, cleaned up. We're working on a on rebuilding my website, working on cleaning up some of the social media stuff. I've started a YouTube series about what goes on behind the scenes in the lives of musicians, nice. partially because things like what I just went into, like this behind the scenes burnout, like that stuff is so real and yeah. we never talk about it. We never we're conditioned to not air our dirty laundry. And so it, the and I think that that um, idiom has outlasted its usefulness because it was coined at a time when we weren't living our lives in public. And so now people are living their lives in public, but with this mindset that we shouldn't air our dirty laundry. So people are posting these highlight reels of the, the best things meal they had this week and the kindest thing their partner's done for them and the prettiest moments of their vacation and only posting photos of their best hair day. And I'm guilty of doing all of those things. But then I'm also guilty of looking at other people's social media and thinking like, well, my life isn't that great. Meanwhile, I'm posting only the best moments of my own life. Like I really think that we are harming each other by participating in social media the way it is presented to us using these like societal rules that we grew up with. So anyhow, that's the other thing is that I'm just sitting at home scheming how to overthrow the system. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I, I, uh, I'm, uh, I'm ready to cast my vote for you. So by the way, uh, I was thinking um, when you said that about burnout, um, I hadn't put together the pieces of the illness part. I remember Montreal. I was there. In fact, we were there a day late too, because mm-hmm. we had to fly through Vancouver because our flight got canceled. So you and mm-hmm. I, you know, ran into each other there. We were at your official, in fact. Um, yeah. And then, but I don't think I had any idea just how I, I didn't realize you'd driven all the way from Oklahoma City, uh, Austin. Well, really, I'd driven Austin, all the way from right. Austin. I mean, yeah. yeah. Um, and I had no idea what was coming for you after that. I will say that in retrospect, now I would never have said this in New Orleans, but in right. retrospect, now that you say that, I can 
I could see the fatigue in you. I, I could see it again. I, I would not have pointed it out. I mean, unless you said this right. to me, it's not something I would have thought of because you were, you've always been so friendly and so, so kind and thoughtful. And, um, and, you know, I noticed no drop off in your singing or your performing or anything like that, but, but there was a sense of just fatigue there. And, you know, sometimes that's hard to tell because folk alliances, as you know, just incredibly fatiguing. So you're always yes. a little bit exhausted, but um, the other thing I wanted to say, by the way, and you made you made us a uh, sort of self-deprecating joke about the musicians and, and the job. Oh, yeah. And I and I think, you know, just like the dirty laundry thing, I, I think it's worth noting, especially now that I'm a booking agent, now that I've spent more time hanging out with you people, you people and, uh, you know, having these conversations and observing. And now I put together tours and I see, you know, Man, I, I think touring songwriters, touring singer-songwriters, especially you guys, it's some of the hardest work out there. I mean, it's it's constant driving, constant, you know, and, and you, I mean, I'm telling you something you already know, but, it, you know, it's the kind of thing where, you know, if you're sick and have to cancel a show, you probably don't get paid for that show unless there's a guarantee. Oh, hell no. Places, <laughs> you know, um, you know, whereas other people have sick leave they have you know they have time that they can take off and and the whatever's happening in their work continues but if you're right. if you're not writing songs there's no songs being written if you're not doing shows you know so anyway just to say i, I appreciate I have great that. appreciation for for how hard you guys work well and i know it's hard work um and i have respect for the work that i do and for the work that all my peers do but i also know that unless you've done it or been up close to it like you are that most people don't see that part right. and therefore aren't aware of it and therefore can get rubbed the wrong way when they right. hear a professional musician bitching about how hard the work is because right. they're thinking like, God, I would give anything for my job just to be getting up on stage and singing, you ungrateful cretin. So I try and, you know, I don't want to <laughs> no, be no. self-deprecating, but I try and be Absolutely. empathetic to to that perspective right. I mean, it, well. it, it is to a certain degree. And, and in some ways I've talked about this with musicians about the songwriting and hopefully we'll talk a little bit about that, but how um, it's, it, it's, it's a, it's, it's a magic show that you guys put on. And, you know, when you came to our house to play, you know, you had just, your partner was, was ill. Uh, so you were yeah. at the hotel, remember, and you came over and then you went and transformed yourself into, into the, the show person and then you put on a fantastic show and you were so good with everybody and those of us who know know how hard it was how much work you put in to get there and we know that along the way there were a lot of songs that didn't make it that you know have been uh, you know in the trash somewhere but in that magic show which we love and you guys love doing and we love seeing we see somebody who loves what they're doing and we only see the best songs you have because those are the ones that have made it to the top, you know? And so mm -hmm. um, I just love performing so much. I just really, I mean, just talking about that house concert at your house is making me very nostalgic for that experience yeah. of being, of putting on a show. I just yeah. love it. And I, I love thinking of it as a magic act because yeah. that, that feels very authentic to the experience that I'm trying to give. I'm trying to cast a spell over the audience and create a space for the audience where they don't have to think about anything. They don't have to worry about anything where they feel complete innate confidence in my ability to guide them through the next two hours of their life. And their only job is to feel their feelings. 
yeah. and to just process whatever emotions come up. And I think we live in this culture where we spend so much time and energy running away from our own feelings yep. that it feels, I mean, I connect with that aspect of the work as being very much my mission is mm. connecting with people and giving people an outlet for experiencing their emotions through this art that I feel compelled to create. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that like, there are a lot of parts of touring that I don't love. I don't love sitting in a car. I don't love carrying a hundred pounds of equipment in and right. out of a venue and then in and out of a hotel and not getting enough sleep and eating weird food on the road. Like none of that do I love, but right. I love that part on stage so much that right. I will endure the rest of it. What, what is it? Chris Stapleton, I think said in an interview, he said, you're really paying me for the driving and the, absolutely. And the, you know, Cause uh, up on stage, I'm, I'm fine with that. And um, exactly. Well, um, let me ask you a little bit just about, um, so it's actually, you've kind of answered the second question was, cause one of the things I've been talking to people about is just their creativity level. Um, you know, I'm not a musician, but I like to play guitar, but I haven't felt, I haven't felt the urge. I, I have to force myself to pick up the guitar or mandolin. Um, and I've talked to musicians like that too, that say they've lost their, their calluses. You know, they're not playing. They're not. And then there are others, Mary Bragg being one of them who actually really likes the solitude. Um, and so she takes that, she then has that extended time to be able to write. Um, so for you, it's, it's a two-parter because a big part of that was you needing to necessarily disconnect and detach from that to give yourself and your body and your brain and your soul a rest. Um, and then as you've described, and when you're coming back, if, I can see it in you. Honestly, as you're describing this, it's like, of course, you, you, you and I are probably the world's worst, worst uh, poker player. So, so we can tell. <laughs> but as you're right. describing this, you, you can, I can just see the light coming on as you're describing mm -hmm. how coming out of that rest period and out of that restoration. Um, and that, that makes me very happy. That's it's, uh, Really yeah, I feel does. like myself again. And the yeah. thing is that it's one of those things like death by a million paper cuts or whatever. Right. It's like, right. it was just such a slow incremental descent into this sort of dark right. place that I, I didn't realize. And I'd just been used to push. I started touring when I was 21, yeah. I'm 37 now, you know, I mean, it's like, I can't do the things the way I did that I used right. to be able to do them. And right. I didn't recalibrate my expectations of myself and it just got me got me in trouble so and I didn't realize that I was having such a hard time until I think my body mm. like really yeah. put on a show to to try and get the message across you know and it, right. it started with a bad back injury which we didn't even talk about I remember that and then oh yeah oh yeah that so that was mid 2019 yeah 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 is yeah. when I threw my back out and then my back got better you know I was in bed for three weeks I rehabbed it and then I got back out on the road and immediately was like touring and it was almost after two weeks three weeks back out touring suddenly after my back thing suddenly I start getting these crazy hives my body's like mm. okay that didn't get the point across right. like let's try this and then I have hives and then I'm like well screw you hives i'm gonna go to a dermatologist and get a shit ton of steroids and then right. i'm just like on course after course after course of steroids and then that didn't get my attention so then i start getting this laryngitis and it's like my body is just throwing yeah, it all at yeah. me until finally i got it and finally i well and i mean i got it but i still felt kind of stuck and then covid presented this unfortunate 
opportunity to right. clear my schedule. And, it, and then I just had no excuse. So let me ask you, because part of this, and Lisa really wanted me to bring this up because I know she's okay. communicated with you. And for the record, one of the, one of our fun memories of you besides our house show was during the uh, government shutdown of all of the people we know, including a lot of family members. Um, uh, you were one of the few people to reach out to Lisa and ask her how she was doing. And you sent her and me uh, a Spotify playlist, which connected us to, to Caroline Spence for one thing, but uh, <laughs> that was, that was a definite bonus, but, but it was one of the nicest things that you could have done. And I know Lisa still just absolutely appreciates that um, very much. And this actually, it seems to me is really feeding into that. So you posted something on Facebook a while back and probably on Instagram. I'm not as good on Instagram, but about really using this time to think about uh, you said in there, how, where would I be if, if this pandemic had hit in 2006 when I was just sort of starting out when I was still building my uh, brand so you're sitting there looking at these younger artists and saying, how can I help them? And so you were talking about this mentoring thing. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more. Have you, have you gotten some feedback on that? Have you got some more thought on as to how that might work? Or It's funny. The day that I posted that, I just had a whole like sort of idea tornado, you know, come through my head. And I sort of envisioned a pro a mentorship program where I get, um, established artists, people who have been touring for 10 years or more, um, who are interested in being mentors, and new artists, people who have released one album or less, and pair them up for a series of mentorship conversations, perhaps over the course, you know, weekly for a month or six yeah. weeks, and then a couple of larger, like, masterclass type things that happen online. Um and my idea was to look for funding, grant funding to cover mm -hmm. um, so that all of the established artists who are involved are getting paid, you know, for their time. And um, and then at the end, have some sort of like big online, you know, concert or party or something. And I had I have done nothing <laughs> with the idea since then. And I'm putting it out there in case anybody else would like to implement yeah. this, because this yeah. might count as one of those wonderful ideas that I would love to see executed, but I am so behind right now on yeah. so many other projects that I sort of put that on the side burner. And I'm glad you reminded me of it because um, I think of it from time to time and think like, I, and that's a big should is like, I really yeah. feel like I, I have this idea. I'd love to see that happen because I think about, you know, I've been able to support myself financially through this crisis because I have had people joining my Patreon page since 2017. I've had people signing up for my email list since 2004. Let me, do you mind me asking you I'm, a couple? Yeah, I mean, the, oh, yeah. A no, couple no, of no. questions about songwriting? Ask me anything. Okay, okay. Um, sure, if I could remember what it was like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure you remember. I'm I'm just sort of curious about your process. <laughs> I was thinking about you. You went to Berkeley uh, for sound engineering, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then, as you say in your bio, and I'd forgotten this part of the story, that you, while you were in school, you started sort of thinking about you were writing songs in secret. 
And so you then <laughs> would uh, start recording them in secret. And then you, you know, that's how you started really kind of writing, right? And then, so you were you performing in Boston? Is that when you first started performing with a guitar? Or? Very little. I mean, I started writing and playing guitar when I was about 13. Hmm. Um, I was not very good. But I really loved it. And when I was maybe 15 or 16, my dad took me to the open mic at Eddie's Attic, which was really inspiring to see, you know, regional touring songwriters doing their thing. And I would come home from the open mic just so lit up and excited and I would write all night long and then go back the next week with new songs to share, you know. And I loved performing. I loved singing and I really enjoyed songwriting and I had a feeling that's what I wanted to pursue Mm. professionally but I also felt like well I should probably have a good fallback career and I had heard good things about you know Berkeley's audio engineering department and I had seen enough behind the music episodes on VH1 as a teenager that I I wanted to learn how all that stuff worked in the recording studio so that no evil producer could manipulate my sound and turn me into you know Britney Spears or whatever so (laughs) I was, again, like 16 when I was making these important life decisions. So I uh, decided to go to Berkeley and major in audio engineering, which is funny because as an adult, I know that audio engineering is the kind of profession for which one needs a backup career. Like it's not in itself a very reliable backup career. But my thought was go to school, learn audio engineering and try and be a, you know, world dominating rock star. And if that doesn't work, then... I can always fall back on sound engineering. I rushed through high school in three years, graduated when I was 16, and started at Berkeley two weeks after my 17th birthday. Wow. Which is nuts because I was a thousand miles from home and I don't know who on earth thought it was a good idea for me to move. But <laughs> I was very driven and, you know, pretty responsible and pretty stubborn and just, you know, it's what I wanted to do. My parents had three kids younger than me. I'm, you know, I'm sure they thought I would be fine, and I was. So uh, my dad drove me up to Boston, and I started school. And I was the second youngest person at the college. And especially considering that at Berkeley at the time, the average age of a student was 25. So there were a lot of people coming back, you know, for a second degree or from other careers or working musicians coming back to hone their chops, people from all over the world. And I felt like an infinitesimally small fish in an enormous pond ocean um it was so extremely intimidating and i poured myself into the audio engineering department because in a way that was more equal that was more equal playing field you know we were all starting basically from scratch now nowadays with laptops and garage bands and consumer electronics being so much more accessible in terms of home recording i'm sure that there are lots of students who get to berkeley knowing a lot about recording already but back then there was much much less of that i mean i was a freshman in the year 2000 and started in the audio engineering department in 2001 a few students had pro tools at home but not many really just dove headfirst into this major and I stayed up late reading all the manuals about all the gear and got as much practice time as I could and helped, you know, assisted other students on their um, projects. And then, you know, of course, also worked hard on my own projects. And I just really made my home, my identity in college in that department. 
in part because it was less intimidating and threatening than trying to put myself up against, you know, some of the best student musicians in the world. Um, did, and, you, did, you, did you take, did you take classes in, in music? Like, oh yeah. So, everyone so is required to take, to, oh yeah. Everyone is required to take like foundational four semesters of harmony, ear training, take arranging, uh, conducting. I took two semesters of conducting. Ooh. I actually fell asleep standing up conducting in a conducting class like I was so and I mean this overwork this pattern of overwork has been going on for a long time because I would routinely stay up till 6 a.m in the recording studios at school practicing on the gear and then get up at eight to go work my my side job at the bank and then work from eight until noon and then go to school from noon to six and then be in the studios from six to six so um anyhow <laughs> so you fell asleep I, I fell asleep while conducting and conducting class and, uh, you know, and I took an Afro-Cuban drumming class as an elective. It was, it was fun. And I, I, yeah, I took some songwriting classes. I did take classes in the songwriting department. I just didn't get a major in it. Right, 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 I right. took some like digital synthesis composition classes, which was a, a sort of a sister program to the audio engineering department, but mm. more about like commercial composition using, you know, like Ableton and Fruit Loops and sort of, you know, synthesis you know, hardware and software. Gotcha. Um, I loved college. I was there for the full four years and I took summer school at a community college where I could get my, um, I could get my academic electives, my academic okay. classes cheaper because Berkeley was an sure. expensive school, but I realized I, I could take like English and world history or whatever, right. you know, your 30 credits required of, um, anyhow, this is so boring talking about my college transcript, but anyhow, I, all of that is to say that I you needed 120 college credits to graduate, and I had like 160. Like I, wow. I did so yeah. much college, I loved it, and I took a lot of musical classes and a lot of audio engineering classes. I took all of the electives offered in the audio engineering department. I just really dove in head first, yeah. and I didn't intentionally sneak back, and um, I didn't. I didn't intentionally keep the fact that I was a musician secret. I mean, everyone there is a musician to some extent. Right. I was just too shy to let people there know how important music was to me because I felt so intimidated and like I wasn't I wasn't ready to to shine or to make it my identity. Um you know, I was talking to a friend from college who was like and he meant it as a compliment, but he was just like, you know, if you had told me when we were graduating from college that of all of our friends, 15 years later, you'd be the one still making a living as a performing musician. I wouldn't have believed it. Oh, buddy. I was like, thanks, dude. No offense. <laughs> really no, appreciate no, it. Yeah. Wait a minute. <laughs> no. And I knew what he meant, though, because I <laughs> right, right. wasn't playing shows. And, you know, I would even occasionally audition for, for Berkeley productions. I just never got cast. So, you know, no one knew that I was trying. And it was right when I graduated. I had one teacher in the audio engineering department, a guy named Mark Wessel, who I adore. And he knew that I was a singer and he would have me come in with my guitar to his engineering classes and sing and play as an like as a demonstration subject so that oh, yeah. his engineering students could practice recording on me. And also by doing that, he was helping me get together a little body of demos. Hmm. So by the time I graduated, I had, you know, four or five demos nice. that were well recorded and he mixed them. I got a job as an audio engineer right out of school in Boston. But 
the weekend before graduation, Mark asked me, you know, what do you want to do when you graduate? And I was like, well, I've got this summer job engineering here. And then I think I might try and move to Los Angeles and become an assistant engineer or, you know, like intern somewhere, become an assistant engineer, and then maybe become a studio engineer somewhere, maybe do sound design for film. I don't know. And he said like, yeah, Becca, I think you could do that. But I've just always thought you'd be happier doing something more creative. And that moment of that educator, like pointing that out to me (laughs) was profound and life-changing and important. And, you know, maybe I would have realized that on my own, but he, I, it just, he was really reflecting Mm. back to me what he saw really lit me up and that maybe I wasn't willing to admit to myself. And from that moment on, I had real clarity of purpose. I was like, oh, right. Yeah, no, he's right. I want to be a performing songwriter. And so from that moment on, everything I did was in support of my goal of being a performing songwriter. So I still took the job at the studio, but then I used my time working at a recording studio to record what became my first record. And then from there, you know, I had a record, so I started touring and trying to figure out how to tour. And then then it just all kind of built on itself from there. I I saw you you did quite a few tours with Ellis and Ellis Paul. and and That was many years later, Yeah. yeah. I toured with Ellis Paul as sort of his dedicated opener. Uh, I think it was 2013 and 14. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Quite yeah. a bit later. Okay. Yeah. First of all, can, can I ask just sort of some nuts and bolts? When, when, you, yeah. when you were sitting down, because one of the things I've been struck by is asking people, um, do you start with an idea? Is it, is it, and obviously most songs I think start with an idea, but some people start with a, with a, 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 a a melody, a riff, uh, a musical idea. Some people start with a, you know, a lyrical idea. And then of course I'm, I'm also mindful that sometimes, you know, you might work from a prompt. It might be a co-write with somebody else. It might happen in a different way. Is, is there a way that either maybe you can tell me how you started writing songs and how it's, how, how it's changed or how you approach that part of getting to that something that's going to turn mm-hmm. into a song. What is most often happening for me is that I will be struck with an idea that is somewhere between five to ten words, you know, like a line, Okay. and it has a little bit of a melody attached to it, and it pops okay. in my head. Um, like for the song Margarita, mm-hmm. it was, um, when I leave, I'll leave the sun hanging straight up in the sky, and that was it, and I just had that little idea, and... I remember, and then I'll write down, I'll get out my phone, I'll record that line, and then just kind of try to extemporaneously expand on it as much as possible. So I'll like scat sing, more melody, try and just let words tumble out, like in that initial moment of inspiration, catch as much of it as I possibly can. And Margarita, you're the reason I've been up at dawn. Then I zoom out, I look at what I have, I write down, you know, as many words as I've thought of, and I then have to figure out, well, damn, like what song 
is that line in? Right. You know, another song, my song, Lie, the first line that came to me was so much for good goodbyes. And it was like, I mumbled as dot, dot, dot. And I was like, okay, with that one. I had just been in conversation with a friend about a breakup and that line popped out of my head and I thought, well, that's probably a breakup song. So then I sit down and I, and then with Margarita, I had actually just been listening to a piece on NPR about um, immigrant farmers and migrant farm workers um, and their treatment by the U.S. government. And so that seemed like, okay, well, that's probably what this song is going to be about. And then I will try and write as many words as I possibly can. And since I'm more fluid with words and melody than I am with, you know, harmony guitar, I will try and keep it off of guitar for as long as I can. And I will just focus on getting as many words out as I possibly can, generally way more than I need. Because I'd rather come up with way more words than I need and then whittle it back than having to keep fleshing. So I... Try and get as many words out as I possibly can. Try and develop the melody, you know, record a bunch of different melodic Mm -hmm. options. And then I'll pick up my guitar or go to the piano and start, you know, kind of figuring out what the harmonic structure is. And then I usually start to get towards what I call my first draft. And the biggest difference in my process now as compared to 10 years ago when I was finishing all the songs on Mystery Prize um, Mystery Prize is an album that I released in 2010 for the <laughs> listeners who do not know. Um, <laughs> I uh, I didn't used to edit my songs very much. I would finish a song and it'd be so hard just to get it done, just right, to get right. it to what I now call draft one, that I would finally finish it and it would be done. And I would just move on to the next one. Occasionally, I might go back and like change a line or a word here or there, but Something that I observed actually from touring with Ellis Paul when I did in 2013 and 14 is he said that editing was a big part of his songwriting process. And I was like, oh, yeah, I edit too. I'll change like a word or two here and there. He's like, no, no, that's not editing. So he then worked with me on a few, like as I was touring with him, I was writing new songs that then became my 2017 record, Blink. And for me, I feel like I made some big changes in my process between Mystery Prize and Blink. Probably was greatly due to Ellis's influence and his editing 
methods. And he took a song that I had just started. I think it was Forever Young Forever. And it was a solid, solid verses, solid chorus. But then he says, okay, what little insignificant words can we remove? What words that are non-descriptive can we replace with words that are descriptive? How how much higher can we take the peaks of the chorus? How much mm-hmm. lower can we go in the verses in order to carve out space for that chorus to have more impact? Things like that. Um, that I just hadn't been as committed to doing that level of detail work in my songwriting. And now that's a big part of my process. And basically what I do now is I get to draft one. And then I, I by that time, I usually have moved to the computer because I can type a lot faster than I can write by hand. So once I get to draft one, I take it to the computer and I write draft one at the top of it. And then I copy and paste that above. I put a line of asterisks under between the two. And now I've got draft two up top. And then I just tinker and I move things around and I take out small words and I try and be more descriptive and do all the things that Ellis Paul taught me how to do. And I tear it apart and put it back together. And once I get draft two to feeling kind of finished and like something new, I copy and paste it. I move it up. I add a line of asterisks. And at that point, I'll record draft two into my phone so that it's, so that it's you know, there's a record of what it sounded like at that point. And then I will keep tinkering. And I will do seven or eight drafts, usually at a minimum, and keeping pretty meticulous records of the previous drafts because sometimes you go too far. Sometimes you... Sometimes you overshoot it. Sometimes you lose some of the initial magic. And then if you have your previous drafts written out, right, then you can go back and find them. Now, if you're working on a computer and you are just deleting things as you yep. go, that that's heartbreaking. I don't do that. <laughs> I, can't, yeah. I can't do that. I'm too much of a pack rat. So anyhow, that's my process. Okay. Uh, so all right. So that about songwriting, that's lovely. I'm, I'm, I'm really always glad to find out that people kind of really kind of think about every word. I, I, the 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 writing nerd in me uh, loves that. Now about your voice, which of course you're famous for having been on the first season of The Voice, um, which uh, so famous. I know, I know. <laughs> when did you? I, you said you've always liked to sing, but you have an amazing voice. I mean, you have a bell like. Uh, I mean, you just have an ability to do things with your voice. I just talked to Heather Maloney. I don't know if you know Heather. Adore I, Heather. I did a podcast with her, which I'm I'm going to be working on, um, and she is very similar to me. I mean, that you guys can do things with your voice, not every singer can do, and you both have learned how to work that into your art so that it becomes a you know another instrument up there on the stage, in addition to to the lyrics that you're bringing, the ideas you're bringing, and the guitar. So, I mean, it, you said you've always liked to sing. Was it just you were always kind of obviously had an ear and could carry a tune and had a beautiful voice. Did you get encouragement from your family or from high school um, choir, anything like that? Or did you? uh, Yeah. I mean, I started, I I started singing in school choirs probably when I was in fourth grade. Um, When I was in middle school, I really wanted to take private voice lessons. My parents were friends with a woman who was a pretty serious voice teacher and she advised them to wait until I was in high school for serious mm. voice training because um, you can do damage to a voice when it's too right. young. Now, different people have different opinions on this. Some people think you should start closer to 12, but she said 14. So I took 
what I call placebo voice lessons with the neighborhood piano teacher, where my parents instructed her, like, don't, don't push her. Don't. And she didn't teach voice lessons to anyone else. It right. was just to me. And we do voice, quote, unquote, air quote, voice lessons where, you know, we'd sing a few scales, talk about breathing and yeah. sing, you know, sing along to karaoke tapes and, you know, just have fun with singing. Which is exactly what I would recommend, you know, for for younger kids is to just foster their enthusiasm and mm -hmm. their joy of music. Um, and then when I was in high school, I started taking lessons with the uh, more serious voice coach, and that was more classical. Um, and I think most vocal training is classical in its foundations. Um, so, you know, I learned to sing Italian arias and French and German art songs and things like wow. that. And, you know, I would compete in the uh, all state choirs, statewide choir things in Georgia. Um, and, you know, my high school career was short because I skipped right. my junior year. Uh, and by the end of high school, I was more interested in, you know, contemporary style singing, you know, folky right. singer, songwriter, guitar stuff. Um, I went to Berkeley, which has much more of a jazz foundation. Um, mm -hmm. And my... Uh, yeah, whereas most conservatories are classically based, Ber what sets Berkeley apart is that it's jazz, its foundation is in jazz. Huh. So, yeah, um, yeah. now you do. So uh, I was a vocal principal at Berkeley, which meant that I took four semesters of voice private voice lessons there. Okay. And um, also sang in some ensembles and stuff. And that's kind of where my voice vocal training ended. Um, I will still occasionally take like a, a master class or a voice lesson here and there. Although now that, now that you mentioned it, it's been many years since I've done it, but it's my intention to go in every now and then and work with a voice coach just to oh. like, you know, check in on how things are going. I, you know, do that with guitar teachers that I love through, oh, across the country. I'll pop in and take a few guitar lessons yeah. to grab some new skills and right. whatnot. And it's interesting because I think my voice has changed so much from the time I graduated college when I was 20 till now. And I think that most of what you hear in my voice, having known me, you know, for the past five years or so, has developed over 10 or 15 years on the road. My voice mm. has changed so mm. much since, you know, you get out on the road and you're playing 150, 200 shows a year using your voice every night. Right. You, I started experimenting with it, you know, like, mm. okay, well, how high can I go with this? How low can I go here? What does this lyric feel like if I sing it this way? How can I push my vibrato there? Like, how does this impact an audience? Like, mm. what if I raise my eyebrows and open up the back of my throat when I hit that note? Right. Like, you know, what if I put the breath in front of this word instead of that word? And how about if I shift this vowel sound? And it's just sort of a gradual process of learning and exploring and workshopping. And then all of that information becomes innate and is then baked in next time I'm writing a song and I know what works and what doesn't. And I'm not thinking, I mean, in general, I'm not thinking about how to showcase my voice when I write. And in a way, I my original songs tend to not really be very vocally showy. The two songs in my live sets that are the most vocally showy are the cover song that I do of the of Come As You Are that I performed on The Voice. And that's because I wrote that arrangement on a show where my whole job was to be as vocally Show, showy as possible. Yeah. yeah. And then on my recent record, there's a song called God Away, mm -hmm. which has a big like melisma, you know, you, 
you know, big chorus yeah. that really is vocally showy. And I wrote that song for a TV show. I didn't write that song uh-huh. for me to sing. I wrote it for a a character on a show who was a bartender and started playing in a band. And I figured since this girl who was the actress on this TV show has a great voice, they would want to show off her voice. Right. So I intentionally wrote like a powerhouse show off uh, melody that I would have never written for myself. I think partially because I have this, I don't know, it's pro- its a quirk, but I feel like I, as a writer, feel like maybe I need to like focus on the lyrics and not detract from the lyrics by doing a bunch of crazy vocal theatrics. Okay, so the way I've been ending these is this is sort of taps into a little bit of your influences, your preferences about music. So I have three questions that I've been asking everybody. They're completely flawed, and they're uh, but they're fun, I think. Um, so the first question, who is the singer-songwriter that makes your jaw drop? Randy Newman. Ooh. Brilliant. Have you heard his song, The World Isn't Fair? I will look when it up. When Karl Marx was a boy, as a history major, <laughs> you should go listen to it. <laughs> okay. okay, second question. And you may have answered some of this, but the idea here is I've been thinking about music that you've listened to, either genres of music or individual artists who are in, who create music that you yourself would not perform, would not even necessarily, but but you like listening to or you've been influenced by them. Yeah, definitely. I'm actually just cheating and looking at my Spotify right now to see a a style of music that's been a huge influence on me that maybe you don't hear in my in my work as it has turned out is that I grew up just completely addicted to like 50s and 60s girl groups and like do up and soul. Interesting, you know, like the Shangri Las and the Platters and all that kind of old stuff. Um, I grew up, That's you know, with awesome. my parents' record collection, and that was my favorite part of it. And I made my own little stack of LPs, and I would play myself. You know, I know all of that music really well. And I think that what I took from that was um, just a love of fun, hooky, singable melodies. Yeah. And also, I think that something that was done pretty commonly at the time was writing about social issues and serious feelings in a way that was like easy to kind of bop along and sing along to. And I love doing that now. Uh, The last question is, as I'm always reminded, I feel, (laughs) I feel a little guilty asking this question because the question is, do you have a guilty pleasure music? And as you, I'm sure are understanding, especially with my pandemic discussions about shoulds, I don't think you should feel guilty about anything. So the fact <laughs> that you, but you understand what I'm asking is, and another way I've asked this question is, is there an artist that you listen to or like that maybe your fans might be surprised that you like? I guess the answer is no, I don't have guilty pleasures because <laughs> I don't feel guilty about liking what I like. But um, I think that people have been really surprised when I tell them that when I run, which, you know, isn't, I go through phases where I'll, I'll go for, you know, walks or runs. And when I'm running or working out, the music that I like is like super top 40 pop. Huh. Just like really fun, clubby top 40 pop. And I think that in a way that seeps into my writing because it's like, you know, I love Sia, for example. Um, 
Yeah. And I think her melodies are fantastic. I think her lyrics are watertight. And I just, you know, the, the that like high BPM keeps mm-hmm. me moving. And so, yeah, that kind of, I, I, does that answer your question? Yes, it does. <laughs> oh, Rebecca, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. Sorry, I didn't yeah. mean to cut you off. I just no, want to no, say no. thanks. I, <laughs> it's, it's always delightful to talk to you. I was thinking about how after I met you in, in Norman and then we moved, you know, I've seen you, I think, at every Folk Alliance since then, um, because I'm pretty sure you've been at all of them. Yeah, I've been um, to all of them except like 2015 or 14. I took one year off because I got a gig. Yeah, that was before I started going. So, well, how um, about that? <laughs> I know, and I and I, it's it's always been lovely to see you because, for one thing, you're always so welcoming, and you know how it is. It's nice to see people you know, but it's also mm-hmm. just enjoyable to spend time with you and talk to you. And thank you. It's always lovely to see you. Like I said, Lisa sends her love. She's been she's been uh, uh, bugging me actually. Uh, for a while, I said, when, when are you going to interview Rebecca? And I was like, well, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. <laughs> Please do give her my love. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. You can find links in the podcast details and hope that you will find ways to support musicians and artists during this hard time. We need our poets and truth tellers now more than ever. See you next time on Music at Three Pines, the podcast. I know everyone's a good dog under these three pines.